Hello everyone and welcome to the Ready Room. When you can't get enough of the chatter while waiting for the next alarm, look no further. No rules, no formats, a mishmash of topics that will leave you wanting more. My name is Derek Jacobus and I want to offer a different perspective on all things medicine and public safety. This is the first podcast of hoping several Uh, But first, let me introduce myself a little bit, and you're wondering, who am I listening to? Uh, My name's Eric Jacobus. I have a slew of initials after my name, uh, dual certified flight paramedic and critical care paramedic, as well as a national registry paramedic. Currently, I am working for a health system down by the New Jersey shore. I am a Philadelphia area native. Uh, currently working as an EMS supervisor. I also have a full-time law enforcement background, uh, currently working in crimes against children as a, an investigator, as well as a digital forensic investigator. You can find me on Twitter at Paramedic, K-E-T-A-P-A-R-A-M-E-D-I-C, as well as LinkedIn. And if you just search my name, Derek Jacobus, you'll be more than happy to find all of the background information. Being a Philadelphia area native, I am a huge football fan. So I am a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. Uh, Football has been tried and true. Uh, in my family blood for many, many years. Uh, Don't blame me. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I am a Philadelphia Eagles fan as well as a diehard Penn State football fan. So if you find me on a Saturday or Sunday, I probably have my phone or a TV glued to me watching the game. Uh, Not sure how much my uh, family and kids enjoy walking around with a phone most of the weekend, but uh, between that and a little bit of fantasy football definitely keeps me occupied and gets me uh, away from the public safety aspect of life. So the first topic I wanted to talk about uh, for the inaugural episode for the Ready Room is one that's kind of a difficult topic for many. Uh, Not many people necessarily want to talk about it. It's one that kind of gets shied away by a lot of people, but it's suicide and it's not responding to suicides. It's not going to a law enforcement assist where you're transporting somebody for a suicide. It's actually suicide in EMS. It's our clinicians. It's our friends. It's our colleagues. It's our partners in crime who we've ridden a 12-hour shift with or a 24-hour shift with. It's grown enormously big over the last few years. I'm not sure how it's come to fruition, whether we're keeping track of it a little bit better, um, whether it be we're allowed to talk about our feelings a little bit more without feeling down, uh, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. And unfortunately, as most things in EMS, we are behind our fire department and police law enforcement brethren in regards to trying to move forward with some kind of resiliency program. Uh, For example, so I am in law enforcement here in New Jersey, and the New Jersey Attorney General has recently mandated a resiliency program that all law enforcement officers need to go through. That's all. Uh, We are a very heavily populated state. We're very, very dense. Um, 
in one county, there could be upwards of 30 towns that are in here, each with their own police departments, and each one of them need to go through a resiliency training program, which has been uh, sponsored and put off by the attorney general. I, there, there's nothing as far as I know that any states have done for EMS that kind of meets that. Um, I had the opportunity to work for the agency that kind of got it off of the ground. Um, it was a heavy lift from what I understand. It took, it was many years in the making, but it was a three-day program. Again, trying to get all law enforcement officers into a room and talk about their feelings probably would work as well as getting a bunch of EMTs and paramedics into a room and talk about our feelings. It just doesn't happen. Uh, in a big environment like that, trying to get people who typically don't open up is not necessarily the answer in my experience. But unfortunately, I don't have an answer to what we can do in order for people to open up a little bit more than they actually do. So this podcast is a little bit on the uh, older side in regards to it is now the beginning of October. I wanted to get this in for September. Uh, September was Suicide Awareness Month. Um, unfortunately, New Jersey uh, recently lost somebody in a lost a paramedic in for suicide. Um, it was a heavy loss for the agency as well as her friends and family. But it's not something that makes the news. It's not something that word spreads around. It's usually kept pretty hush-hush uh, versus a line of duty death where everybody in the world hears about it. A 2020 report by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the occupational group with the highest suicide rate in the United States was the mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction field. Uh, the suicide rate for males in that group was 54.2. The suicide rate for males in the healthcare practitioners and technical healthcare support is 23.6 and coming in second in the United States. Uh, the suicide risk for EMS workers in the United States, as measured by a percent of all fatalities, is about twice as high of the national average. So if this is more... of a higher rate of incident than homicides, why aren't we looking into it? Why aren't we trying to come up with a program that will help our workers? Why do we step on the feet? Why do we step all over anybody who tries to help themselves? I'll give you a hypothetical. So you are a paramedic uh, you have worked for 15, 20 years in a high-volume program. Um, my, all of my experience, unfortunately, is New Jersey, so I don't have any other experience other than the areas down here in uh, New Jersey. But in a high-volume environment, that person has seen everything from hangings to suicides to watching their own friends take their own life in front of them and they're expected to come to work every day to be happy, to give customer service, to be able to get the good uh, customer service reviews when these surveys come out. 
um, as well as to continuing all of the education and training requirements that were mandated to do, uh, whether it be in person or recently uh, via distance learning or via Zoom meetings uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But that person has gone out and they don't know what else to do. So instead of opening up, they start backlashing. Uh, they have a spouse and three children at home. And instead of doing that, they distance themselves. They pick up overtime. They get a second job. And they went from working a 36-hour work week, three days a week, to working five, six days a week, picking up 18-hour shifts in between. They come to work and all they want to do is catch up on sleep. They distance themselves from their partner. They don't talk about anybody. He, they go to the calls and they're ignorant to the BLS crews, to the fire department, to the first responders that are on scene. Uh, they don't offer any bit of insight to the patient other than treating the bare bones basic of what needs to be done. Uh, they come back. They don't want to restock the truck. Uh, eventually that turns into complaints by the crew members to supervisors and that person ends up getting the progressive discipline and ends up getting terminated from a job that they've held for 15 plus years. Hypothetically, if that person at any point went and said, I need help and went to a therapist and was put on any kind of medication and disclosed that to the health system or agency that they worked for, how would your agency handle that? Think to yourself, be honest. If you went to your supervisor and said, hey, I have to take Xanax or hey, I have to take a antidepressant or I have to take something for my anxiety or Ritalin, etc. If you went and said you had to take any of that for any of your problems that you went and saw a therapist for or a psychologist or even just your general practitioner, how would your, how would your place handle that? Again, honestly, I'll, I'll pause and give yourself a minute to think about it. Because realistically, I, I, if someone came to me as a supervisor and said that they needed help, I will be the first one to jump and cheer for them for A, reaching out. Reaching out and, and acknowledging the fact that you have a problem is probably the hardest step out of all this. Finding a counselor, going to counseling, everything that happens afterwards, it's an uphill battle. But the fact that you are looking and you want and you acknowledge that something is wrong is probably the first step in acknowledging and being aware that something is wrong. And I gotta—I have to be honest. I don't see anybody in law enforcement, fire service, EMS jumping and knocking down barriers to say, "Hey, listen, I definitely have a problem, and I want to go to therapy." Because the minute you come around, and everybody in your agency finds out that you're going to therapy for X, Y, and Z of a problem, what realistically, what's going to happen? Eh, everybody's going to, and I guarantee I know what you're thinking, everybody's going to talk about it. And when that gets talked about, that'll eventually leak to your administrators. And then how, how is your administrator going to handle it? How's your administrator going to handle that? Hey, you never disclosed that you had to take anti-anxiety medication and you're treating patients like this day in and day out. 
Uh, yes, they're happy that you've picked up 18-hour shift uh, overtime over and over and over again. But realistically, how are they going to take that you're you're taking medication on a daily basis? Um, I, I don't know how that's going to help. Um, if you're going to therapy and you acknowledge that you're having issues, whether it be PTSD or anxiety or depression, if you have any of that stuff, how is that going to play if everybody in your agency, including the administrators, find out? The problem is we need to get out of our own heads. Um, I'll be the first to say that I've been to therapy. I, I've been to counseling. I've gone for many, many years. Uh, the crime that I currently investigate uh, at work is crimes against children. Um, I've been to therapy uh, as part of a task force that I was on. It was mandated for uh, quite a few years that we attend. Um, on top of that, I actually went and did my own therapy and counseling. And literally, it was about an hour of talking to a guy at a bar. Um, it's not anything that is mimicked on TV. You're not laying on a couch. Uh, you're not doing anything that is traditionally shown on uh, media of what a therapist is. Um, on top of it, it, it it's like dating. It may not take you the. It may not be the first, second, third therapist that you see. And usually, after by that time, and I'm speaking from personal experience, you start to get pretty down and out the fact that you're not going to find anybody that you connect with, especially with what we do. I mean, let's face it. What we do is not necessarily something that is common and not necessarily something that is normal for our day-to-day -day basis of people that walk the streets of our bystanders that are not doing the job that we do. Not many people can wake up, go get coffee, respond to a shooting, or respond to a call where someone's been deceased for months at a time that's now mummified, laying in a hotel room, and leave and then go finish their breakfast because that's what they missed when they first went to that 911 call. This is all stuff that we continue and always have and has always been pushed down. I mean, I, I've been on the job for 20 years and I was always taught to push it down, push it down, push it down. Well, I'm now watching 20 years paramedics that I have had the opportunity to walk alongside that are now having issues with pushing that down for 20 plus years. And the fact that no one has ever acknowledged that it's okay to come out and say, yes, I have a problem and yes, I need help. And yes, I'm going to therapy and yes, I may need medication to help me over the rough part is all okay. And the fact that you can continue to be the person that you are while doing all of those things and continue to be a positive and strong clinician is something that should be shown and and absolutely acknowledged by administrators for EMS throughout the country and throughout the world, uh, honestly. Uh, it's a little bit different in England, Australia, in regards to uh, suicide and how they treat and how they take care of this stuff in regards to their clinicians being on medication, having uh, going to therapy, but that should not be looked down upon by any means. And the first step of anybody, like I said, should be acknowledging that you have a problem. And a lot of us do. And realistically, um, I had the opportunity to be part of a nonprofit uh, suicide awareness group. Um, it is down in the South Jersey area. And I have to admit, uh, in being the administrator, I never would imagine, A, uh, the people who grew this and who uh, made this happen, 
I don't think they realized how big it would get in such a hurry and how much of a wide stretch it did. And the fact that people are reaching out and saying, hey, I need help. I just don't know where to start. Listen, you can Google, hey, I'm an EMT and I don't know where to start to find therapy. And I guarantee you're not going to find anything. Uh, You're going to jump on a website like Psychology Today and I'm giving you my own personal experience and you're going to scroll through thousands of therapists all with different degrees, all with different resources, uh, all who treat different kind of conditions. Well, if you don't know what kind of condition you you have, then what are you searching for? Realistically, most of us probably have some form of a PTSD, but if you don't know what you have, you don't know what you're searching for, and there's no easy way to search for first responder or law enforcement or EMS. Those people are few and far in between that actually understand what we do and to be able to guide us in the right direction of what we're supposed to do moving forward with therapy. And sometimes that delay ends up making making us think, what if, what else? If, If I'm failing at treating X, Y, and Z patients, or I am just overloaded that I am working my tail off, And again, let's face it, EMS across the country is not paid and compensated what they are in regards to our uh, brethren inside the hospital, Uh, whether it be nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, any of the other fields that are inside the hospital, we're usually the lowest paid. So most of us are working 40, 50, 60, sometimes 80 hour work weeks, one, two, three jobs. Uh, Some people work literally seven days a week that I know just to be able to meet ends meet to pay for either child support or to uh, continue to put a roof over their head for their children, their family. Uh, And on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, that that, I mean, I'm not even going to add into that mix in regards to what that has done to EMS just yet. Uh, But a lot of us get to that point where we don't know what else to do and we just can't keep up. You cannot work 12-hour shifts seven days a week and to be able to continue to be in the right mindset. And a lot of us eventually get to that point of, well, I am a complete failure. Well, before you get there, there is definitely help that's out there. There is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, Through a simple Google search, you can find the number. It's 1-800-273-8255. Again, it's 1-800-273-8255. If you ever find yourself in any kind of situation where you're thinking that, all I ask is that you reach out and at least give somebody a chance to talk. Reach out and allow somebody to help you because suicide is not necessarily the answer in regards to solving all of your problems. All that does is pass your problems to your family and give them an absolute loss, an absolute irreplaceable loss that can never be fixed. I want to throw another hypothetical question is if somebody does commit suicide, should it be an on a job death if it is attributed to a work related cause? I saw this pop up on a Twitter post and doing some research for the show. Uh, As it popped up, there was a mix of answers, uh, some kind of along the middle uh, and a lot on one way or the other. 
if somebody leaves a note and attributes their stress and depression that happened from on the job, whether it be attributed to one specific call or an attribution of multiple different things, if all that was the reason that they committed suicide, should that be considered on the job and should they be allowed the benefits of an line of duty death as an EMT from your agency? I don't know. I, I, I have to be honest. If if it can be attributed to a work-related cause, I, I really think it should be considered. Uh, there should be some kind of opportunity to be able to help the family moving forward because a sudden loss of life to a lot of people, especially an unplanned loss of life, is very difficult to any family in regards to trying to prepare for a funeral, a viewing, a burial. Uh, everything that happens afterwards is a very difficult thing uh, financially, a very difficult thing psychologically for a family to deal with. So is there something that your agency has or is it something that you can go back to where you ha may have a line of duty death policy but not necessarily a suicide policy? Uh, does someone from your agency go and sit with the family or offer services or to be able to do fundraisers? What is out there? Do you have any nonprofits that would help the family financially get over the burden and to be able to figure out what to do until if that person has life insurance, until that check actually gets signed? And a lot of times if that person does have life insurance, if there is a suicide clause, that person may not get paid. So the administrators that are listening to this show, I ask you to go back and bring this up. I, I'm really curious and I'm re I really want to know your thoughts in regards to if this happened, if so, a suicide happened and the suicide note or whatever causes could be attributed to the on the job stress, would that person be it? would that person be eligible for line of duty deaths? And I'm going to try to throw that question up on Twitter and I'm really curious of your answers. Again, reach out to uh, at Keta paramedic, just like ketamine, but paramedic, K-E-T-A, paramedic. Uh, reach out. I'm going to throw the question on uh, and uh, give me some feedback. I'm really interested in what you think in regards to uh, if it is a on-the-job, if it is a on-the-job attributable suicide, can that person be eligible for benefits? Um, and what would your requirements be? And if you do have a policy, I am actually really curious if you're able to share that. I'm able to read it. Um, I'm really curious what that actually says. So what, what I'm going to try and close with is what, what is being done to help us? What are being done to help the EMS responders become, the key word is resilient or resiliency. What programs are out there that are offered to us? And I know a lot of people are going to shove right down my throat is the uh, EAP. Well, the EAPs, the uh, emergency programs, assistance programs that are offered by a lot of agencies, especially some of the bigger health systems that are here in New Jersey, uh, a lot of the EAP programs that are out there usually offer you through, it's kind of a uh, textbook contract that they sign with a, uh, a healthcare provider. So it's usually three free sessions that you get for the therapy, and then they can kind of point you in the right direction to where you need to go. Or if those three sessions are good and you just need to event for whatever reason, you're getting divorced, 
uh, you're going through some financial troubles and you just need somebody to talk to, those those th- sessions are free and given to you by your agency. And a lot of agencies have jumped aboard on that. Um, but in regards to us, there's nothing really out there that that is sponsored by the government or that is paid for that will help us become more resilient. Listen, we all acknowledge there's a problem. Uh, throw EMS suicide in Twitter and it jumps all over. Jump on any Facebook group that has EMS in it. I'm in quite a few and they'll mention it. We know it's an issue, but we're not doing anything about it. And definitely the government or anybody else is not necessarily recognizing that we have an issue on our side of the house in EMS. Uh, in law enforcement, uh, President Trump recently signed a or put into bill, uh, it's uh, law S2746, uh, basically saying that the attorney general acting through the director of the FBI shall establish for the purpose of preventing future law enforcement suicides and promoting understanding of suicide in law enforcement, the law enforcement suicide data collection program under which law enforcement agencies may submit to the director information on suicides, attempted suicides within such law enforcement agencies. And all this stuff will be confidential and kept by the government in regards to figuring out and collecting data of EMS suicides. Well, on the EMS side of the world, there's nothing really out there that collect that. It's it's voluntary to report anything. And if you do any search for any kind of research on it, it is, I, I'm going to save you the trouble that it's few and far in between. Uh, there's a paper in published in the October 2nd, 2020 by Neil Vigil and others from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, the Department of Emergency Medicine, titled Suicide Among the Emergency Medical System Occupation in the United States. And they're the ones that came to the conclusion that in a multi-state study over about 10 years, they found that firefighters and EMTs had significantly higher proportionate mortality ratios for suicide compared to the general U.S. working population. Uh, Also in that paper, these elevated levels of suicidal ideation and suicide attempts are hypothesized to be the result of occupational hazards associated with the EMS profession, which include routing exposure to high levels of physical and psychological stress. Well, that literally is our work day in and day out, and you add the COVID-19 pandemic in the last two years, and let's face it, I mean, you guys are, I remember when COVID-19 first started, we went from going call to call to call to now going to a call, stopping, putting on a gown, putting on a P100 mask, uh, putting gloves on, making sure everything, all of our gowns are completely taped up and bringing in the bare minimum into a house as to not expose any of our equipment over and over and over again. Then ride that patient to the hospital. Uh, In New Jersey, we run a chase car program. So we jump into the back of a BLS ambulance, drive to the hospital. Uh, Once we're there, we obviously have to decon and, and make sure we're going in in a safe manner to not infect, potentially infect any other patients inside that ER and then come back out and then wipe everything down and make sure we're decon, make sure we're safe. And next thing you know, we're doing that same thing five, six, seven, eight, nine times and watching patients basically go into respiratory and cardiac arrest in front of us, but not being able to bring anybody else, including their family members to say goodbye 
because you didn't want to get them infected or possibly uh, exposed to co potentially COVID-19 because we could not test at bedside uh, pre-hospital. So as you're doing this, you're watching the emotional draw that it absolutely takes on family members. And I will say that it is strayed many close friends away from the EMS world. It strayed many close friends from the nursing world and other people have looked for other careers just because they don't want to deal with it. Um, you can absolutely throw a search term of travel nursing in TikTok and you will see exactly what I mean. A lot of people are realizing that they can make a lot more money doing exactly what they do for travel nursing. Uh, it's not for everybody, uh, and they also have contract paramedicine. If you are single and eligible or able to travel and don't necessarily have too much stuff tying you back at home, uh, it is absolutely something that is out there and, and pays very, very well. Uh, as you can see, if you ha if you do have the app TikTok or even Google, throw it in there and you will be surprised of what you actually see and what healthcare systems are actually paying now that they are running into massive shortages uh, clinician-wise. And it it's everybody. It's nursing, it's techs, it's physicians, um, it's EMTs, it's paramedics. Uh, I, I don't know a time when uh, a specific health system that I... I no friends in that says that they don't have a manpower shortage. Uh, how many trucks in a multi-truck system are put out of service for manpower shortages? How many people are working overtime uh, day in and day out to make sure those trucks are staffed? Uh, it, it continues to happen over and over and over again. And that is adding to exactly what this paper has highlighted in regards to the quote-unquote uh, routine exposure to high levels of physical and psychological stress. Um, and again, it, it's a running joke on a lot of memes, but the usual thank you is let's throw a pizza party. Here's a pizza party. We got pepperoni. We got sausage. We'll give this all to you. And some places have gone as far as offering a very hefty retention bonus or increased salaries, uh, market adjustments, um, it, it, and you can only do so much in regards to a fiscal responsibility as a health system to, or an agency to give somebody raises like this, uh, without running yourself into running yourself out of business or out of service. Um, what is the answer? I, I'm standing here in front of you today and I don't know what that answer is. I don't know what the answer is to be able to say, how do we retain and how do we keep people in health systems? Um, we, you can pay them more, uh, you can offer them services such as EAP. You can be okay with, uh, them seeking therapy. You can, um, allow them to have flexible shifts. You can allow, um, switches that are not scrutinized for who they're working with or where they are. Uh, some scheduling managers are extremely tough. It's tough in a multi-jurisdictional program where you have a lot of trucks up and a, that scheduling manager needs to make sure that uh, partner B is not working with partner D because of a previous conflict. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't. And I, I really hope you guys out there may have some insight to how do we retain people in an environment that we continuously get exposed to that meets 
the increased suicide rates for EMS and firefighters. And listen, realistically, you can you can add nursing into that. Uh, we have nurses in our critical care transports. I'm sure there's nurses that listen to this podcast. They, they can easily be thrown in there uh, into the mix because the mess that they're dealing with. If you've ever walked into an emergency room, uh, especially in the last two years, you can see what I'm talking about. And, and you may not have an open eye when you walk into the ER just because you're extremely frustrated because of what you've had to deal with. Uh, in regards to that transport or deconning or having calls stacked, but that hour transport that you may have had to that emergency room, now that nurse is stuck with that patient for hours on end afterwards. Uh, a lot of times it is not simple. Uh, they go from a uh, maybe a four to five person ratio to maybe a six to seven to an eight person ratio uh, because they're short or they couldn't get anybody in on overtime. But uh, that that is happening across the country, and I, I see it through social media. I see it through a lot of the Facebook groups I'm in. Uh, it, it's it's very interesting to engage with a lot of these people because I asked uh, before I started the show. I asked a lot of people what they think is the answer, and no one seems to have an answer. So if you do have an answer, you're probably going to be a multimillionaire if you can figure out how to keep retention and how to keep your providers resilient and how to, uh, at, at this point, recruit and maintain some of your younger staff. Um, a lot of people have been doing in regards to recruitment and retention, uh, some in-house uh, academies to continue to, uh, in-house free academies to get people through EMT school uh, to be able to dump a $15,000 investment for uh, paramedic school to be able to get them trained. Um, New Jersey is a little bit different than most states, but in regards to trying to get hospital partnerships. So those type of things are definitely out there, it, 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 but everything costs money. And with COVID happening last year, a lot of our health systems and a lot of our agencies uh, are very, very tight in regards to the funding and the money that is coming in the amount of money that they've put out for uh, PPE over the last uh, year or two. So finally, I want to end and conclude with what leads to suicide? What leads to us getting these thoughts in our head? Um, I would love to ask somebody. I've had people that I've known commit suicide. I've had friends that have committed suicide. I have friends that have attempted to commit suicide. The problem is a lot of them that have attempted and has survived don't necessarily want to talk about their reasons. Um, I don't know many people that have gone down that rabbit hole that want to open up and say, this is the reason why I did it. This is the this is the absolute cause of why I wanted to take my life and take my mark away from this world. And they've come from all demographics, white, black, Hispanic, uh, master's degree, bachelor's degree, a doctorate degree, um, high school diploma, uh, EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, uh, nursing, uh, physicians. Um, in 2020, last year, there was a physician up in New York, an emergency room physician that uh, took her life. Um, there was a paper that kind of highlighted it from Christine, uh, Christine 
Maltier Yu from the Academic Medicine Journal uh, from May of 2021 and told Dr. Laura, Lorena Breen's story. Uh, she graduated from medical school in May of 1999. She's been around for many years, over two decades worth. Uh, but she committed suicide on April 26th of 2020. Uh, she was working in the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic as an emergency physician at the New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan. Uh, she contracted COVID-19 through that, falling ill after a handful of days treating patients during a pandemic. When she returned to work after about 10 days at home, uh, everybody began to ask whether or not that the COVID-19 virus infected her brain because her behavior and speech were dramatically different during the recovery. Um, and all that eventually led up to her suicide. And this is somebody who was in the midst of everything. And New York was a very, very high rate of transmission. It was right up there between New York, New Jersey. Uh, all of us were fairly high on the East Coast uh, as everything started to expose. And, uh, as we began to find out more about what this virus is. But what leads us there? I, I, realistically, from what I understand and what I've read and what I've looked on different kind of forums, um, Reddit is a great open forum to where you can kind of get an unbiased view from many people who have contemplated suicide, uh, but they're not EMS specific. Uh, if I were to say, uh, between the burnout and listen, if you've done this for any longer than a minute, burnout is definitely a key. Uh, I switched careers almost 14 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, from doing EMS full-time in a very, very high volume, uh, area. And when I left, I was only a paramedic for about six or seven years. And I, I have to say I was pretty burnt out. And if you ask anybody who I worked with, uh, they would probably agree. Um, I, I I enjoyed going to work for the most part, uh, just because I was in my early 20s. At that point, I was making somewhat decent money. Uh, I was working just like everybody else does. I was working five, six days a week. Uh, I switched over to permanent nights. Uh, my sleep pattern got thrown off because I would stay in the morning, cover a couple hours in the morning. Uh, burnt out is definitely burnout is definitely a big big, big thing in EMS just because the compensation is not all that much and we work our tails off. Fatigue, all that working eventually leads to fatigue and then that fatigue eventually leads to depression. If we don't get enough of our me time, that is going to eventually lead to a depressed, sometimes angry rage. And that constant exposure to things that not many normal people see, and, and I, I don't have to go into detail what that actually is. Uh, any one of you, the minute I say that probably brings, I know it does to me, brings your mind to a scene that you don't want to see that continues to replay in your mind over and over and over again. Um, I can probably tell you my top three and at every party, the minute they find out that you're in any kind of public safety, what's the one question that they always ask? Oh, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Oh, I don't necessarily want to explain it to you. It's not cool. It's not anything else other than I want it out of my brain, but it lives rent free and sitting up there. So what out of all that, how do we, how do we fix that? 
And that's kind of the question that I want to leave to you guys. How do we fix it? Because I don't have an answer. Um, how do we get some sort of resiliency program for EMS across the country? Uh, if you have any resources to be able to do so, um, I would love to hear if your state has something. Uh, please pass it on because I could not find anything in my research. Uh, please reach out to me again on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Reach out and, and let me know because I truthfully could not find any resiliency programs specific to EMS. There, there's a bunch for uh, law enforcement, um, a handful for firefighters, but I could not find anything specifically for EMS. And if your agency has done anything uh, agency specific, like if you are a large agency, please let me know that as well. Because uh, again, uh, I am extremely curious to where if agencies are trying to jump in front of this and be proactive uh, and letting people know that it is definitely okay to go talk. Um, I've had a lot of experiences over the last couple of years and a lot of exposure to suicide. Um, I would love to be able to share a bunch of those stories as this podcast goes forward. I would love to have a few guests with me to be able to tell their story and to be able to get it firsthand. Um, and I hope you continue to join me in, in going through and, and listening to these stories as we move forward. With that, I want to say thank you, and I appreciate you uh, continuing to listen over the past 40 minutes or so. And the one thing that I, I didn't want to necessarily keep to a format as I started this podcast, I wanted to leave it fairly open. Uh, a lot of our most interesting talks that I found is usually with your partner sitting inside what I call the ready room uh, here in New Jersey. But it could be your firehouse, it could be your station, it could be sitting in an ambulance if you're stuck in an ambulance for 12 hours or 10 hours, or hopefully not 24 hours. What are the conversations that you're having that you want to know more about or what that you feel needs to be talked about or what do we need to blow the lid on? Uh, I will continue to try and keep as many interesting topics as we can moving forward. I will try and get a lot more personal aspects and personal stories of people that have gone through some of our uh, attempted suicides and uh, resiliency programs, and hopefully we can bring some of that back to our agencies. But hit me up. What do you want to see next? And with that, thank you for joining, and I want to thank you to GEMS for allowing me and giving me this voice on this podcast. Stay safe, and everyone have a good night.